Hey everyone, welcome back to the National Fire Radio Podcast, where we are releasing daily episodes Monday through Friday. Conversations with people that are in love with this job. We talk about the highs and the lows and everything in between, but if you're here listening and part of the National Fire Radio community and you're checking out this podcast, whether it's your first episode or you're all the way in on a hundred and something episodes by now and you're bought into it, we appreciate you. We appreciate you being part of the community and constantly coming back and listening to the podcast. Welcome. Enjoy the word. And for us to be able to do this and deliver this to you every day, we need the help of some sponsors. And these sponsors are partners where we do collaboration work and they allow us to put forth great content with great guests so that we can keep pushing this job forward. So before we hop into the episode, a quick word from some of our sponsors. Taylor's Tins. Taylor and his team have been manufacturing aluminum helmet fronts since 2017 with over 200,000 shields in the market. Taylor's Tins is a leader in the American Fire Service helmet front space. Not only do they manufacture helmet fronts, but they do so much more. Locker tags, key chains, CO monitor charts, medical kit charts, pump charts, banquet awards, you name it, they do it. Go over to taylorstins.com and check out what they can offer you today. They've become a longtime sponsor and good friend of the National Fire Radio podcast, and because of that, they offer a promo code at checkout. So when you go to taylorstins.com, enter NFR sent me. That is NFR sent me, and you'll get 15% off your checked out order. It works on all stock items from taylorstins.com, including quick tins, license plates, locker tags, and much, much more. Exclusions do apply. This is a company that prides themselves on quality and customer service. From the inception, from your design to out the door, it's within 48 hours. Nobody else is doing that. They can't do that. 48 hours to get your shield out the door to you to put it on your helmet and get to the next job. Anyway, check out taylorstins.com. Again, that's taylorstins.com. Check out their latest offerings and use promo code NFR sent me. That's NFR sent me for 15% off on your checkout. And in the words of Taylor and his crew, stop burning up leather. Hey, everybody, Jeremy National Fire Radio back on the podcast today. Today, I got a special guest, and he's special because he's done a couple projects with me in the past. He's been on the show before. I asked him to come back because I wanted to hop into some command topics tonight. And so tonight, I got Chief of Operations out of Salisbury, North Carolina, Chief Nick Martin. Nick, what's up, brother? Hey, what's up, buddy? Always always an honor to be here with you. It's fun, man. We've done a couple projects together. We did some uh we did some roundtable discussions as well, uh, with different manufacturers and so on. And and you've been on the podcast before, and I'm kind of excited to have you back on tonight. I wanted to reconnect. It's been a little while. You've had a change in your uh title since we've spoken last. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh always moving whether uh whether I want to or not, it seems like. So yeah, I, you know, ended up uh, taking a, a little bit of a promotion. I did the training chief thing, you know, as a battalion chief for a long time. I did a bunch of stuff in that spot, and then um, you know had an opportunity to take the operations chief position, which is still obviously heavily tied with the training thing and uh, keeps me kind of in the arena, which I love, which is you know all things uh, fire ground and yeah. You know, been in that spot uh, in, informally for about a year and formally you know, just before Christmas, but just, you know, doing the thing. 
That's a great spot, man. I, I think that the operations is. boss is just, you know, as we said before we hit the record button, it's the sandbox, right? You get to, you get to mold and shape that fire ground as you see fit, and it's just a, a dynamic yeah. position for sure. Yeah, like I said, it's like, it's like back in the day when you were a kid and you used to have a bunch of toy fire trucks, except now they're all real. Yeah. So it's even better. Man, you know? I'll tell you, I was so good. <laughs> I was so good at positioning my apparatus at like 12 years old, oh. man. I was so good at it. So, yeah. but anyway, well, welcome yeah. to the show. Thanks for joining me again. Um, you know, you were on quite a while back, so I don't know, you know, listeners today, if they remember your past episodes, but I would suggest they go back and listen because there's a lot of good stuff built in. But today I really wanted to hop into like maybe different styles of command. I know that you are very forward thinking in the command process, your presence on the fire ground. You speak nationally in regards to uh, command and operations of fire grounds and so on. And so you have a unique style, but there's a lot of different styles that are out there in the fire service. And so I'd love to maybe just tackle that topic a little bit, maybe talk about how you organize your fire ground, the different positions uh, and so on, and then run down that route and really form a nice conversation, tactically speaking from a command point of view. I think it'd be fun. Yeah. Let's do it. I love it. All right, cool. So how do you want to open the door here? I mean, you are you are a checkbox guy, and I don't mean that blue card checkbox. I mean checkbox like making sure that there's accountability on the fire ground. You have a, a systematic way of making sure that the tasks at hand are getting done and there's accountability for them, correct? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's fair to say, you know, in starting this or any similar conversation is we're all products of our environment, yes. right? You know, so we all... We all come up, uh, you know, in, a, in, in an area or in a department under a certain way of doing things. You know, we have people that we looked up to when we were younger, and many of us start out kind of emulating those positions, you know, or, or how they did things. And, and I am I am no different than anybody else like that. You know, I um, did the meat and potatoes, you know, uh, I started very young, but like, you know, when I really got into it for lack of a better term, when I, when, when you know, I, I was, a pro- I'm a product of the metropolitan Washington DC area. Right. You know, I was, a uh, an, a firefighter and an officer in the Washington DC fire department. You know, I, I spent a, a lot of time as a volunteer in Prince George's County. Uh, and those fire departments, um, in that kind of mid Atlantic area, particularly in the, in the DC Metro, um, they're just very organized. Um, they're very, uh, they're very just so, um, they're very, very disciplined. Um, and that's what I kind of came up with is, is kind of a very disciplined style of firefighting. And I think that probably connected, uh, subconsciously very well with the fact that I am absolutely OCD about firefighting. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's partially why, but, you know, it, it is interesting, you know, it's, it's a story kind of how I got into the command stuff, especially as young as I did yeah. you can go there if you want. Yeah, please. Um, but you know, the, you know, the, as I've kind of traveled, I've been traveling the country now on the road teaching. I mean, every fireman has a part-time job and mine through luck became teaching and I've been doing it for about 20 years and I've been doing the command stuff for probably, you know, 10 of it. And, um, you know, going around the country, it is very interesting to see different styles of command sure um and some of it you know is some of it is uh, is very obviously geographical you know i I can tell you right now if we go to this area of a country here's going to be the hot topics here's going to be the things they love here's going to be the hate or that they will or they won't do and it's 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 interestingly replicatable you know that meaning that if i went back to if i went back 
one state over on probably many of the same conversations. Yeah, um, right. So it, it, it's weird. Like you'll go someplace and, and they think if you do this, you're crazy. And if you don't do that, you're crazy. And then if you go somewhere else, it'll completely flip flop, you know, um, just based on what area of the country. And, you know, even though for the most part, we're all going to relatively the same kind of fires. Makes sense. I mean, it's, you know, our region is, we're a product of our environment, right? And I think what's yeah, crazy, yeah. though, is there's such extremes when it comes to commanding a fire scene. Some parts are really squared away, aggressive in their approach, uh, aggressive command, uh, a command structure that it holds accountability, super important. And then you find other firegrounds that are very loose, and, uh, yeah. and and can be detrimental to our own safety in the operations of the fireground because it might be an incompetent leader or an unconfident leader uh, and a structure or an environment that doesn't promote the accountability that we require. Yeah, it, it's very interesting is you, you, you go to different areas or you listen to different audio of fires, and there are some areas where you know, I, I think there is not as, as much of a common definition of incident command as people think there is. That's a, you yeah. know, there's some places that that what the you know what the guy running command does is he repeat he repeats back he regurgitates or parrots what everybody else says on the radio without really doing anything else other than repeating it back and then maybe he calls for the power company you know he does like basically yeah. nothing right um and then you have other you have other departments where they absolutely micromanage the crap out of those guys you know and you put the left foot in front of the right or the right foot unless the command tells you to and it's you know it's that's to you know both of those extremes to a detriment yeah. and you know one of the things that i have you know i've I come up under i guess and i i definitely have adopted is i i take a stance that you know i think a lot more incident command happens off of the fire ground you know i think when when i first you know got a chief spot it's great man i get to wear a white hat talk on the radio and i'm, I'm gonna be barking barking out orders in heroic moments you know and all these kind of things and what you end up figuring out is is that, you know, and, and this is paraphrasing, so, I mean, don't take, you know, take it no more than that. But the more you command off of the fire ground, the less you have to command on the fire ground. Yeah. You know, meaning the more that you prepare your people, the more that you dial your people in, you know, the more that you operate in a decentralized manner and, and make sure that your people understand, you know, your intent. You know, your intent maybe as an individual or your intent as a department or the intent of a policy or a plan or whatever you know, the more that they, that you, that you train them up or prepare them with that stuff before the fire comes in, the more autonomous they're going to be on the fire ground um, in a positive way. You know, yeah. they already know what to do. No, it makes a lot of sense. And when you, when you put it that way, it really starts to unpack what a, what a well-run fire ground looks like, sounds like, feels like and it has everything to do with the foundation that's built in prior to even getting to the fire ground and i i don't think you yeah. know as as eloquently as you just put it it makes terrific sense and but i don't think a lot of people break it down that way and they they think that you know why why is it a lot of the command staff don't even train anymore right it's like when you get to that command command staff level it's almost like training stops with them because they know how to run a fire ground they know how to run communications and that's that narrow mindedness that i think really pegs you into a bad place on the fire ground and so that yeah. back yeah i mean that back end of training doesn't stop when you get into a leadership position it's got to continue 
Well, it shouldn't stop, but that's that. I mean, that that's part of the story of how this all started for me is I encountered for many, you know, a lot of people for who it did stop. Yeah. You know? I mean, let, let's just get this out of the way. You know, if you take a group of badass firefighters and you send them to a tough fire, um, there there is a certain percentage of those fires. And I don't I can't tell you exactly what that percentage is, but it's not 100 um, percent where those firefighters will be successful despite command, meaning that even if command is non-existent, incompetent, or, or whatever, you know, those firefighters are just going to be like, yeah, whatever, guy, and they're going to go put this fire out. You yeah. know? But where that fails is when, when things get complicated, you know, when unforeseen events start coming up, whether those problems of, I don't know, building, water, manpower, anything, you know, when it starts going past the first SCBA cylinder, and, and we start needing plan for relief, you know, or when it starts going into, you know, exposures or different areas of the building. And, and, you know, whenever it gets to the point where you can't just have like a couple of engines and a truck dominating a fire floor, you know, whenever it gets a little bit more than that, that that's where if we don't have, you know, a strong presence, the fire is going to fail. We're going to yeah. do really good for the first SCBA bottle work. And you get done what we can get done there. And then the rest just, I mean, the rest isn't going to go because nobody was getting it ready. You know, and I would also argue that for those instances where it is successful, it is successful because of the preparation of the of the firefighters involved. And, you know, some of that is is those firefighters um, take on the initiative on their own, either either, you know, by init- their own self-initiative or because they have to because nobody else is doing nothing for them. They take it on themselves to become good. Um, but whether they become good uh by themselves on their own initiative or whether it's through you know leaders or chief officers or captains or whatever preparing them you know it, it is all about that that pre-incident preparedness really, a lot of good points there there's a lot packed in here man this is really yeah so with all of that then i mean you have the right go-getters on the rig nine out of ten fires or seven out of ten fires typically will go well fire goes out we're high five and we walk out the door. The chief didn't matter. The operations boss didn't matter or the lack thereof because the guys are go-getters and they were aggressive and got to the seat and took care of what needed to be done on the fire ground. It is those times, man. And I wrote that down when things get complicated, dot, dot, dot. That's where, that is where the dynamic command staff, the accountability truly shines. And those are the moments that we need them most. And, and, and I could have so many directions I want to go here. Like, yeah. I know we talk about different command styles and then I know we're going to talk about you know, where the incident commander is and everything, but that's also like, that's why I believe that, you know, there are some incident commanders out there that they believe that what they need to be able to do is they need to run in circles around the fire ground and constantly physically contact everybody so that they can tell them verbally through pointing or on the radio where they should go and what they do. And I believe if you have to do that, you haven't done enough for your people before the fire ground, you know, before the fire comes in. I'll just give you one example. Um, And and again, I'm paraphrasing here to fit the podcast. So you got to give me a little creative license, but ventilation decisions, right? Ventilate. There's no quicker way to screw up than to ventilate the wrong way in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, Our incident commanders make absolutely, well, I wouldn't say absolutely, but they make no real directive about when and how to ventilate. Right. Um, you know, on, on our fire grounds and when we're on offensive fire, um, the engine company is going to call when they get into when they get a line on the fire and they believe they're basically have the upper hand on the fire. 
they're going to call and they're going to say water on the fire. And when they do that, that's like the dinner bell for our ventilation crews, for our outside trucks. And I have some pretty young guys yeah. that will be on the outside truck. But they are basically, when they hear that on the radio, it is up to those, those vent team members to decide when, how, and when to ventilate. Yeah. It is their decision. You know, they don't have to call command and ask to get on the roof. They don't have to call command and ask to break a window. And all of us, you know, that run command, we know that when, when you hear that water on the fire, you know, benchmark, those guys are going to do what they feel they need to do unless we tell them not. You know, so if there was something that we saw that say, well, hey, despite that, we shouldn't open up yet or something like that, we would need to manually stop it. But right. there's no mother may I involved. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We, we spend we spend a crazy amount of time, you know, training our people on everything from, you know, fire behavior to ventilation tactics and, and going through scenarios and reviewing fires and all that kind of stuff so that I can have the trust, you know, in all of these people that are operating around these around the fire ground to be able to make independent decisions. Yes. That though they are independent are are unified. You know what I mean? They're all all the dots are connected because everybody on the fire ground from the chief down to the backstep firefighter, from the engine to the truck, knows what everybody else is doing and thinking, and they understand how to fit together in that game, if well, that makes sense. Yeah, well, the, the expectation has been laid out, the training has been given, and the benchmarks are built in, right? So when you have a, a uh, cohesive culture and environment from the command staff to that backstep, like you said, then it's understood, man. You don't need to be there to point and dictate and direct unless it's something a, a, an audible needs to be called, right? You need to pivot from the initial game plan because they see something that maybe those crews don't. But other than that, it's business as usual. Well, yeah, and, and when you're running any kind of centralized command structure, meaning that there's one person who decides when to do all the things, that is necessarily going to be a very reactive and slow moving operation because one person can only be in one place at a time. Yes. You get what I'm saying? So right. I mean, 100%. if everything has to be directed by, by the guy that's in charge, then I mean, everybody, you know, he, while he's telling one person what to do, everybody else is standing around saying, I can't wait till he gets here and tells us what to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want my people to know what to do. Yeah. And I want, I want to know, I want to know what they know to do. So I know that's going to happen. And then I know whether I should, you know, do nothing or whether I should do something to enhance that or speed that up or whether I should do something to pause it or slow it down. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. And I think what's really interesting is the evolution of the fire ground. I mean, I remember 28 years ago when I started in the fire service, it was the, the chief's house to burn down and he was standing in the front lawn and he literally looked like a lone man, you know, a portable radio dictating, you know, how it's done. And now we've gotten to a point where we build out and understand the importance of a command team, right? An incident, incident management yeah. team where we're using additional resources, additional chiefs or officers, whatever your department makeup is or how you operate. But we understand that, you know, a centralized uh, command perspective is important. And then we have people and assign people positions on the fire ground to support that centralized command structure. Is that similar to your model? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, the I'm just thinking of a bunch of things here in the background, and I was yeah. I was just thinking, you know, one of the things we've had a string of entrapment fires uh, okay. over the past, you know, over the past half a year, and you know, um, you know, lots of stories involved. Sure. And and I was just thinking of one that we had just before Christmas, 
And, you know, I, I got the audio from the dispatch center, you know, afterwards for post-incident review stuff. And uh, the audio represented, I think, an hour and 45 minutes of time. But when when this when the communications is the audio, they remove the silence. So you don't have to listen to sure. the silence. So it's, it's very it's just one transmission on top of the other. And the audio that we got was, I think, about 22 minutes and 15 seconds long, which means an hour and 45 minutes. You know, I don't know what that math is on the fly. But there was only 22 minutes and 15 seconds of radio traffic. The rest of it was, yeah, um, because people know their jobs yes. and, and they know what to do. And I, I think there's this, there's, you know, in some cases a misconception, and in some cases it's true. You know, some people think that when we talk about there being strong command, or we talk about, you know, some of the things that that I think they they see me talk about when I have, you know, 2,200 Instagram characters to talk about but I can't go into the whole book, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Right. Um, is, is they think that strong command equals weak firefighting or strong command equals micromanaged fire officers. And there are some people that do that and, and they give, they give command a bad name in doing that. You know, what I'm talking about is this, the strong command that, that I want to see again, you know, is about the plan and is about the preparation and the training and the empowerment before the fire. Yeah. So, you know, D-Day and, and the gates drop on the front of that, you know, of that uh, beach lander, it's it's Viking storming the beach. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 100%. Um, it, it's not a bunch of people standing on the front lawn saying, so what should we do, chief? You know what I mean? You know, I, I want the guys to storm the castle and and our guys um, are prepared to do that. And, and we trust them to do that. And, you know, there's. You know, there's a lot of iconic things that, you know, you know, people, people, you know, people see things like the uh, the commanding from the car stuff. And we can talk more about that, you know, where they see the use of, you know, we call tactical worksheets and stuff like that, tracking where the companies are and stuff like that. And I think they think that's the only thing that's going on. Right. Or I think that they think that there's not other things covered. But, you know, as you alluded to earlier or before we hit the record button. You know, 80, I, w- I would say 85% of fires that I personally operate on, uh, I'm in, I'm in gear in an air pack, you know, either anywhere on the, around the building or a lot of times on the fire floor. Um, and so we kind of pair, um, we pair a lot of different perspectives together, you know, whether it's at a strategic level view or, you know, it's outside of a, stat- a static command post or whether it's, you know, kind of that forward tactical position. Um, but all of it is kind of rooted around that, you know, decentralized decision making equals quick action. Yes. And quick action is what puts fires out and saves people. Really well said. I mean, I, I don't know how much more I can <laughs> I can add to that. I mean, that that's really well said because it matters. And I think that might be, you know, Nick, that might be some of the misconception about what you talk about, how you operate is a lot of that in vehicle checkbox uh, you know, tactical work. I wrote down tactical worksheets, so I don't call it check boxes. I apologize. It is a tactical worksheet, and and that's holding you accountable to your job as a as a command staff officer, wherever you fall in that category, and who's operating that sheet. Correct? Because well, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and the 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 main thing that the main thing that thing does, you know, whether it's a board or a piece of paper or a crayon right. and a napkin, or the main thing that it should do. Is, is help the incident commander keep track of where their companies are yeah. and, and what they're doing. I mean, there's other things on that board. Like, I mean, obviously, I, 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 you know, one I made is I have for sale. 
You know what I mean? You'll see there's other things on that board. That is not what I'm looking at 90% of the fire. Yeah. 90% of the fire, I'm looking at what resources do I have? Like what companies do I have on the scene? What areas on the fire ground am I trying to cover? You know, is it the third floor and the first fourth floor and the vent or whatever, the roof, you know, and, and where do I have those companies placed in those areas? And it is a scary thing when you watch, you know, people's fires or you listen to people's fires and it's just obvious that they have absolutely no idea where these people are. They have, they might have 10, 15 companies on the scene. They might sound great on the radio, but they have no idea where anybody is. And they really have no idea what anybody's doing. And that might be okay. Uh, I don't think it's okay, but they might get away with that up until something goes wrong. Up until uh, it gets complicated. Something, yeah, when it gets complicated and something goes <laughs> wrong, right. it's, it's, it's asses and elbows and everybody's going, oh my God, where's everybody? And how did we not know where they are? And where is that guy? And, you know, and the other thing that just drives me absolutely crazy is the number of missed radio transmissions. Yes. You know, I listen to some audio from, I like to listen around the country. I listen to other people's fires and see what I can get from it. And I listen to some fire on an airplane ride home and I'm listening to guys call frantically from the fire floor, very obviously on the fire floor. And, and I mean, four or five times and the incident commander not, not to them, you know, presumably because they're distracted somehow, you know, because, you know, they're either, you know, there's a fire truck with the engine up at 1200 RPM to them or somebody coming up to them and tapping on their shoulder and asking them a question in person, you know, and, and I'm a strong believer that there's there's no there, there's really nobody on a fire ground that's going to tell you something more important than the people inside of the building, and those people are absolutely in the most dangerous position. And if there's you know one thing we owe them is when we send them to the fire floor that if they call us on the radio because they want to tell me something or they want to ask something, uh, I'm going to answer. Yeah. And I'm going to answer on the first time, and I'm not going to make that guy. I'm like, okay. I understand you're searching for a baby right now, but I didn't hear you. Could you repeat that? Like, no, you know, we, we owe it to them to get that message and act on that message right away so that they can do the job. Because I think what other people might think, might think I think, or might, might what might think that other people that are passionate about command think is that it's all about command. It's not about command. command does not put the fire out. There is nothing about me wearing a white hat, and talking fancy on the radio that's going to do anything about that that fire or that kid on the floor above. You know, it's firefighters on the end of the nozzles and the firefighters on the howling bar and on the roof, you know, doing searches and opening up and putting out the fire. That's what puts fires out. Yes. And command's job is to prepare those people before the fire ground, and then when we're on the fire ground, to support them. Yeah, really well said. I think fireground distractions, man, I that is, to me, something that's got to be talked about more, right? Because, you know, it, it is, if, if, you're, if you're not building out a command staff to help you run that fire, execute that fire, monitoring radios and, and handling resource management and all those things that go into a, command, a, a strong command presence, distractions, man. Like when you're, when you're trying to do everything by yourself. And this, this goes to any department, right? Because you've seen it all and, and, or 
I don't want to say you've seen it all, but you've been around the country, as you alluded to in the beginning of this podcast, and you said that I've seen I've seen a lot, right, in all different styles and forms. And there are still those places where the the chief believes he can do it himself, and it's done by himself with a handy talkie in the front yard, whatever it is, circling the building 16 times, and everything's being thrown at him. And without the correct infrastructure in place, you're going to miss all the critical stuff, no? A hundred, a hundred percent you are. And, and, and I'll give you the example is, you know, I, like I said, you know, I, a lot of times, you know, I, you know, especially if it's after hours, I'm not the first chief there, you know, our on duty battalion is. And so the way we run things, the second arriving chief is going to dress out and, you know, go to a forward position. And, and again, that could be anywhere on the fire ground, very often it's the fire floor or whatever. But, you know, anyway, I, I, I listen, I watch my own videos, you know, because I, I, I video my fires um, with like a GoPro that I have on me and I, I get the audio from communications afterwards. And I, every single fire, you know, afterwards, I hear something that I didn't hear that night on my radio. Yes. You know, occasionally like I can hear, you know, the microphone next to my GoPro. I know it came through. I didn't hear it. You know, and occasionally, occasionally, I'll hear something the next day when I'm listening to it that I didn't hear that night, even though I acknowledged it on the radio. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Because there's a difference. My my wife has told me this once or twice. I don't know if anybody else can relate, <laughs> but there's a difference apparently between listening and hearing. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? And uh, apparently, I might, I might, though I might be listening to some people, I don't hear them. Um, and that's a real thing. And so, you know, if I can miss that in a forward position, I, I, you know, I guarantee you if I was the incident commander in some kind of forward position, I would be missing that radio transmission also. Yeah. And I think, you know, before people mishear me too much is, is what this conversation seems to devolve into is some kind of either or like, Oh, well, what is it? You know, either you're on the front lawn, you know, in the iconic position, you know, barking out orders to the troops, you know, or you're back in this disconnected command post. It's either or, which is it? And, and that's not what it is for me. For me, it's both, you know. Yeah, why our, can't it be you know, and? We, we send. It's and. Yes. Not or, it's yes, and. I, mm. I, have, I have the incident commander, you know, in a static command post that 99% of the time is located in the Italian vehicle. A common misconception there, and it took me a while to figure this out, is that people think that means they can't see the fire building. Uh, these guys are more aggressive with trait placing their battalion vehicle than any, any ladder driver I've ever seen. And I guarantee <laughs> you, they see the fire building. I love that. Um, and, and they see the fire building without blocking out water supply or ladder trucks or anything like that. Um, you know, so they absolutely, even though they're in a command post, they can see the fire building. Um, and then, but also simultaneously, we have one or more chiefs that are again in these forward positions that might be doing laps around a building or might be on the fire floor, the floor above or the roof or wherever that biggest pain point or biggest hazard is. And I think what people have to appreciate is that both perspectives have advantages and disadvantages. Right. And they're different disadvantages and different, you know, what advantages I get when I'm inside of a car are not advantages I have when I'm on the fire floor. And the advantages that I have when I'm on the fire floor are not are not available to the guy that's sitting on the sitting on the in the command post. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I, I think the the best thing that can be done is you know I'm I'm pretty proud. I like how we do it. And and I didn't invent it. I, this is what I came up with. This is what I watched generations of chief officers in the Atlantic do. 
And what they do is they send people that think like them to see the areas that they can't see. You know, some fires I go to, I'm in command and I sit in that pretty little car with air conditioning on. And, and a lot of fires I go to, I'm on air and I'm on the fire floor. And so when I'm on the fire floor, you know, in addition to thinking about that stuff, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about what I would want to know and what I would be thinking about if I was in the car and I'm dealing with that. Yeah. And if I'm out in the car, I'm thinking about last week I was on the fire floor and here's what I was dealing with. And I have that awareness of what's what's going on there. And I deal with that. And like you kind of alluded to earlier, there, there's a lot of chief officers out there, um, regardless of where where they might run command from or how they might run command. There's a lot of chief officers out there that, that it's been it's been a decade or more since they were on a fire floor. Um, and I think that, you know, continuing think that for all chief officers that are going to command fires to continue to have that perspective is not only valuable during the actual firefight, but is but valuable for them as a perspective, whether they're in the office by, buying a ladder truck or writing a policy or whether they're at the command post running the next fire. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, it's if really you do well a little put. bit of both. Yeah, if you do a little bit of both, you know what I'm saying? You, you, I think you're more valuable in both positions. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And in fact, I think too many times guys that go up the line forget they're firemen. Like, and, and that is mind-numbing to me. And um, I know the culture that we have as additional chiefs arrive from outside agencies, we do a lot of mutual aid here when we have, you know, structural fires. And so we're relying on outside resources coming in to supplement the, the, the municipality's fire department. And so as they come in, doesn't matter where they're coming from, chiefs are put to work. And chiefs are to report to the command post with SCBA because they're going to be put to work. There's a lot of command staff positions that need forward placement, and we're going to put them to work. And years and years and years yeah. ago, that wasn't the case. Well, but and you see it, though. You know, you see and there are a lot of great chiefs out there. Don't get me wrong. But you know as well as I do, there's a lot of guys that took that spot because, you know, maybe their knees hurt now. I or, get it. You know, hey, you know, you know, they wanted to be in charge or they wanted to pay raise or they never wanted to be on the fire floor anyway. You get what I'm saying? And yeah. there's a lot of people out there that, that make that fit fit them. Yeah. Um, I and, think I think know, one of the valuable things you said too, Chief, was also that you lose touch when it comes to writing policy, purchasing equipment. If you're not in those positions anymore or, or have lost touch with what your firefighters are dealing with on a regular basis, you know, in structural firefighting, you become disconnected, not just from the point of view of the firefighter, but also policy, equipment, you know, personnel, and all those other issues that reflect on you as a chief officer. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, and I, you know, I, 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 the what I one thing I've been I've been in large fire. This is the smallest fire department I've ever worked in. You know, this is a you know six station fire department with twenty five people on duty. You know, I spent most of my career you know in thirty plus station fire departments, and you know uh, about eight eight years as a chief officer in one of those fire departments. And you know the thing when you get into those larger fire departments that I didn't know, and and maybe others don't know, is that the higher you go in a fire in a fire department, and the larger that fire department is, the more uh, the more easy it is to become disconnected from the nozzle, yeah. you know, to be disconnected from the, from the fire ground, and that is a detriment, you know. But in those in those large fire departments, you know, 
it would be crazy to see a chief air pack. It would be right. crazy to see a chief, a chief riding on the engine. Um, and you know, I'll tell you what, for those that are listening, um, there's a lot of firefighters out there that they do it themselves. They'll sit in the kitchen and they'll complain about how disconnected admin is, how disconnected the chiefs are. They don't know what we deal with. They don't know what we do, you know, but then the moment a chief tries to step out and says, well, let me, I'll tell you what, let me get on the engine. Today. Yeah. You know, let me, you know, let me come to the fire floor with you. Let me do this or that. And, you know, and they try and do these things there'll be a union grievance or there'll be somebody complaining or that's not your job or, or that kind of thing. And then they'll go back to the kitchen table and complain about why this guy who's disconnected makes bad decisions. You get sure. what I'm saying? Like yeah. it's, a, it's a loop. And I, I love, I mean, the department I'm in now, the side department, I mean, I, I rode the nozzle on an engine this morning for six hours. I'm doing 24 hours on the rescue on Wednesday. You know, those will be the best parts of my week. That's cool. riding, riding fire trucks. You know what I'm saying? And then, I'll go back to headquarters and I got to finish writing a spec on a tower ladder and working on some policies and stuff like that. And every time I do that, you know, I'll be thinking about, you know, what I did on the fire truck or what we need to do on the fire ground. Like it's all, you can't let that stuff be disconnected. You know, one of the best chiefs I ever worked under, he would always say, you know, never, never, you know, always keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is going to fires. Writing that down. Always keep the main thing the main thing. And that and that guy was the deputy chief of a six hundred member fire department. Sorry for the silence. I'm just writing it down before I forget that. I always look for in each episode something that is representative of what the episode is. And I use that as the title, and I think that might be the title of this episode. So I love it, man. What talk to me? How difficult is it for you? I mean, you're just listening for the last 35 minutes with you. You are so dialed into this topic because you've been teaching it for a long time. You've been I watch uh, social media. I've seen your class. I saw your class once in person. I think that's the night we met. That was in South Jersey a couple yeah. of years ago. I wanted to meet you. Yeah. Um, and so I came down and sat through your class, met you. I watch your social media content, which I want to talk about towards the end of this episode, because I think people don't understand how much value and how much effort goes into what you build out, but it's, it's just incredible and it's really good social media content. But where I want to go with this is like, how difficult is it for you as you travel around and you, you work departments that invite you in and then there's a lot of holes or deficiencies within their own structure. Where can departments start like how do you look at your existing and say we need to do better right because i was thinking the whole time you were talking about accountability on the fire ground and the one big aspect of of command is you know taking care of everything before it gets complicated right and so i think about yeah. like on a volunteer department you get called in and you come in to do some training and you talk about the command staff and so on and you look at these departments and it's like one day they have a two-man or three-man engine company the next day they got five guys on the first two their jobs can vary based upon the fire they don't just have this bread and butter like first engine is first line first truck is search and entry and and ventilate like so how do you address that? Because I think a lot of our listeners, you know, the majority of the fire service is not urban firefighters where, you know, companies are really dedicated to certain tasks with the same staffing, same riding positions where you can drill that in from day one, like you guys have where you are and you have this culture built out. So maybe just a couple things for people that are listening that 
come from departments that call audibles all day long in their response, what equipment's running out the door, what the lineup of the equipment is, how many guys they're staffed with. Just maybe a couple things there, Chief, that maybe you could offer as some suggestions or, or items to, to focus on. Yeah, well, number one is is the more of those problems you have, whether it's, you know, reduced manpower or fluctuating manpower or rural water supply or, you know, any of those different challenges, those those challenges are not a reason why you can't do these other things or they're not an right. excuse why you can't That's do right. these other things. In fact, they are a reason why you more need to be dialed in. You know, I, I, I talk about it all the time, you know, as a firefighter in the District of Columbia, you know, I did the math and like on a first alarm fire, like a one alarm working structure fire, we live in the neighborhood of, of 50 personnel on scene. Yeah. Um, and they would all get there. I mean, and, you know, different areas of the city and times, but they'd all get there in five minutes or something like that. You know what I mean? And I always say, like, you know how much stuff you can screw up and get away with? when you have 50 people that yeah. are be there in five 100%. minutes, mm -hmm. you know, and, and let's for, first off, I am not saying that we were bad firefighters. No, 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 I the best guys, were, you, you know, the best guys I've ever worked with. I learned everything there, but you get what I'm saying is when you've got that kind of redundancy and depth, you know, you can, you know, you got a lot more, you know, wiggle room, you know, but when you're showing up, you know, at a rural water supply environment and you've got five guys for the next 10 minutes, you better nail it yeah. on, on what you decide to do and how you do it. Because I say it all the time. Like, guys will talk about having plan B and plan C. Well, what good is plan C if you blew all your people doing plan A? You yeah. get what I'm saying? Right. Like, you got to nail that decision-making out of the gate. And one thing I think I don't advertise enough, um, you know, is that I operate in two different environments. So, you know, you know, if you've listened to me and, and you you might have for the past 30 minutes, you might have some sympathy for, for firefighters that work in my department because I am as OCD as it sounds. <laughs> and I want everything just piled in and just so and I'm a nitpicker and all that kind of stuff, you know. And so when we have a fire in the city, like, you know, that's what we get. It's 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 as it's as dialed in as it sounds, you know, but we also um, operate. You know, we are a, a city fire department within a county and we provide. Uh, daily automatic aid okay. um, to the county. You know, I went through a reported structure fire in the county today. It didn't turn out to be anything. But anyway, um, you know, when we go out into the county into these different departments, they are not, they're not our department. They don't have the same rules. They don't have the same plans. They don't have the same staffing. Got it. It's mostly rural supply. Um, you know, it's, it's all of the challenges that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on, you know, on any given day, if I'm lucky enough to have two fires today, I could have one in the in the city where 25 people that I've been dialing in for the past five years show up in three minutes and we conquer like an invading army, you know, and then later that night, I could go to a fire out in the middle of nowhere where I get two guys now, a couple more guys in a few minutes. I got a tanker pulling in. You, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Some of those guys, you know, are volunteers and maybe they're maybe they're the top runners or, or maybe like this is one fire that guy showed up to this year. right you get what i'm saying so it's it's when you talk about all the command practices you know the details start getting specific right i mean in terms of like how you're going to do these things details become variable based on your staffing model or how you deploy and stuff like that but what is universal is the practices you know and what else is universal is the fire doesn't give a, doesn't give a crap about your problem that's right the fire's job is to burn the building down and kill you as quickly as possible you know, so 
when you talk about simple concepts like, you know, tracking who you've got, deciding what areas you need to do, you need to cover, you know, putting those people in those areas, you know, tracking them through predictable benchmarks, like knocking down the fire, controlling the search and controlling the extension, making sure you're not getting overwhelmed with an incident commander, um, making sure that you're not getting tasks saturated, that you're not missing radio transmissions, that you're not distracted, you know, all that kind of stuff is, is universal, regardless of what type of fire ground you're on. You know, this, again, the specifics of how you might achieve that goal, that, that might get a little bit different, but the, the, the universal things are the same. Yeah, I you yeah, a lot of good things right there because I think what the reason why I bring this up is I can foresee people like excuses and people like finding ways to say, uh, it's it's hard. We're different. We we vary. And in fact, you drive it home really well and, and really well put that you have more issues that require a a dialed in command staff. And I think that's important. Something you hit on too that I think needs more discussion are those benchmarks, quote unquote, right? You just mentioned that, you know, water, water on the fire holes, you know, we made, you know, uh, ventilations complete primary search complete, you know, like benchmarks. Those are important things that I think can dial in. Um, maybe if you have a, a loose structure, finding commonality in the things that are necessary to report on, which then puts and frames the mindset on the fire ground. Can you talk about that benchmarking a little bit more? I think that's a really good topic. Yeah, I mean, basically, in a nutshell, you know, if you think about an offensive fire in a building, you know, basically, what are you trying to achieve? You're, you're trying to put the fire out, you know, clear the, the searches, the primary searches, uh, and control the extension. And, right. you know, if I were, you know, I, I say it all the time in these classes, like if I were to tell you that in the building involved, in all the affected areas of the building, the fire is out, the search is negative, the extension is controlled, how would you feel about that fire? You know, and most people say, I feel pretty good. And I'd say, well, does that matter then if I'm talking about a single wide mobile home or if I'm talking about a 30 story high rise? You know, if you had a fire, if you had fire on all 30 floors of a 30 story high rise, but you had in on all 30 floors, put the fire out, cleared the search and controlled the extension, you know, other than feeling pretty tired, uh, how would you feel? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the rest is Red Cross and fire marshals. You know what I'm saying? The rest is, is the is cleaning up. Yeah. So that's kind of what it comes that that's kind of how I'm thinking about it when I when I approach a fire is saying, OK, well, this is these are the three primary things I know that I need to achieve. How am I going to divide and organize this fire to achieve those? You know, so that might be different, you know, for the single wide mobile home or the 30 story high rise, you know, a two story house. OK, I got to do these three things on these two floors. You know what I mean? How am I going to place my companies and organize the incident to do this? Or am I am I at a 10,000 square foot warehouse? Again, I'm trying to achieve those same benchmarks, but because of the floor plan or the hazards of the building, I have to structure my approach to that just a little bit differently. But the, the meat and potatoes of it are the same. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. And I and how you're breaking that down, it's it's great to hear. It's that mindset, right? It's taking a situation and breaking it down to make it manageable, and then you build it back up and and represent that manageable situation with what you can bring to the party. How do you how do you build that out, Chief? Like, what are your? Uh, I'm not specific to Salisbury, but just in general. Um, how do you determine what command roles need to be filled? Like what's the pecking order from arrival? Who, who is the, you know, incident commander down to the, whether you're a division boss or an interior chief or a battalion chief or however it works. Right. Cause I'm thinking 
for like volunteers for uh, different areas, people listening to this episode, right? It can be, there's a lot packed in here. And I know not everybody runs a really well put together fire ground, right? And so what I'm looking at is like, how do you determine those forward positions to help support the command staff? What are some of the decision-making, you know, opportunities, things that you look at to say, I need another guy here. We got to put another guy here. We got to build this out here. What does that look like for you? So, you know, to say it again, the, the, the number one incident commander is training and preparation. Yeah, you know, and I agree. Just a quick fire story we, we've been telling for the, the past few months. We had a fire in August, um, mid-Saturday fire, um, and it was about, I think, four or five blocks from our headquarters firehouse. Um, when the fire came in, um, there was an engine, um, two ladder companies, and a rescue company at headquarters, just, you know, doing Saturday training or cooking a barbecue, whatever they do on Saturdays. But, uh, and the on-duty battalion chief had gone to our most outlying fire station to run an errand. Um, So they were, you know, they were 10, 15 minutes away from where this was. And fire comes out and um, they pull up and have an obvious work and fire. And neighbor comes up and says, you know, that there's somebody trapped in the house. Um, so by the, by the time, by the time the battalion chief arrived on scene, um, there were, there was a water supply secured. There were three lines stretched and operating on the fire. Uh, the holes were being punched in the roof. The victim was being dragged out to the front lawn and CPR was being started by the RIT team. Um, there were multiple VESs going on. The primary um, was continuing to go on after they were as they were searching past uh, the first victim. All of these things were done. It was basically like, all right, battalion one's on scene, and uh, I'll be assuming command, and the uh, fire's under control. You know, and yeah. so basically, all of that stuff happened. And I, I want to be careful how I say this. You know, with with basically no command, meaning there was no chief officer on command, and, and we don't really put any company officers um, in command prior to the um, battalion chief arriving on scene. Right. So, you know, basically how did all this happen? All this happened because we have a really good plan. That's right. And we have really well-trained firefighters uh, and officers that make good decisions. They understand the mission. They understand the intent and they know how to work together as a team. Um, And they absolutely conquered that fire ground with, you know, really no direction. I mean, I say no direction, but no direction on the fire ground. Like all the direction was up front. Yeah, I get and it. And so I, I can't emphasize that enough. You know, now now that being said, you know, filling out your command roles, you know, obviously, um, you know, the first person on scene is going to, you know, the first chiefs on, on scene is going to is going to probably need to take command of the incident. Now, one one, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I get the opportunity to to travel around and, and I talk to everybody from major urban city fire departments. I'm not going to name drop or anything, but some, some pretty good ones. Um, and all the way down to like the most rural, smallest fire department you ever see. And right. it's very different to, to hear the different concerns or challenges sure. that come out of the different environments. But so like a common, here's a common problem that, that comes up for that low staffed areas. They're like, look, man, I get it. I love it. I, I want to do all the fancy command things. You know, I want all those colored pencils and widgets and all that stuff. But see, the thing is, when I show up on scene, yeah, I might be the chief, but I got to pump the fire truck for the first 10 minutes. Otherwise, nobody's going to, you know, or, or I got to feed line in the front door. Or they're not going to make it past the threshold. And I get it. 
And, and if you're in that kind of environment, then you pump that fire truck and you feed that line because talking on the radio to nobody, you know, that's isn't right. going to put the fire out. You know I mean? If, if that's where you're at, if you've got to pump the fire truck because nobody else is there, well, you better pump that thing because there's nobody else there for you to talk to. You know what I'm <laughs> right. saying? Absolutely. But, 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 what I want you to understand is that when you're, when you're feeding that line or pumping that fire truck or whatever, you just got to have like that little birdie on your shoulder. That's reminding you like, Hey man, just so you know, you're not really in command right now. Just like be aware of that. Like, yeah. You know, just kind of, you know, every once in a while, look up from that pump panel and say, all right, what's the chief supposed to be thinking about? Cause I'm also supposed to be the chief. You get what I'm saying? And so that you don't miss those things. That's and a good then point. as soon yeah. as you can, as soon as you can get somebody else to take over that pump panel or to take over command so that you can focus entirely on one task or the other. Yeah. You know, so I say that when I talk about assuming command in those environments, but you know, once you get, you know, whenever it becomes possible, somebody who's, you know, regardless of their title, you know, who who's qualified and trained to command a fire ground is going to take that initial incident commander position. Now, after that, um, you know, if, say I start getting additional chief officers on scene, what I would tell people to do is to put the, put your second arriving chief in the area that is giving you the most trouble. Yeah. Good. Uh, that, that's causing you the most heartache. And, and for me, the way I run things or the way our firegrounds are is usually that is the fire floor or the floor above. It's one of those two usually makes sense. Now yeah. I say that b- because I'm, I'm in an area that's very organized. Um, so if you, you know, I don't usually put that second chief at the command post. There's a lot of departments out there that'll have that second chief come to the command post and stand next to, or sit next to the first chief. I, I don't do that. Um, you know, now, but you know, if, if, if you're in an area where you don't have well built out plans and maybe you're dealing with a lot of neighbors and maybe they're not as organized as you want them to be, then maybe your biggest pain point is at the command post. Maybe, maybe where I really need me, that help right now is at the command post, getting organized, getting people deployed, you know, all that kind of stuff. So maybe it's not the fire floor. Maybe it's the command post. You, you got to look at your area and your situation and say, what area is causing me the most drama right now? And that's where I want to put my first help. Yeah, that's, right? a, that's and, a really good rule of thumb, man. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing to say about that is I, I keep saying chief because where I work, that's the title. You know, they're battalion chiefs and division chiefs and things like that. But, you know, that is, you know, I can assure you from my own perspective that, that chief officers do not have some kind of, I don't have some kind of sixth sense or worldly vision that other people don't have. You know, any any competent lieutenant, captain, sergeant, whatever you got, you know, anybody out there, you know, is, is probably capable of filling these roles. You know, the, but the difference between most company officers and chief officers is that, you know, all jokes aside, when I get in my little chief's car and go to a fire, I don't have any friends with me. Yeah. It's just me, you yeah. know, as opposed to. You know, when I get on the when I get on the rescue this Wednesday, I'll be an officer. I'm, I'm I might be the division chief of operations, but when I get on the rescue on Wednesday, I'm going to be an officer or a backstep firefighter. Hopefully, I don't know where they got me right yet. But you know, it doesn't matter what my title is. My job is officer, and, and when I go to the fire I, and I've got you know other people with me, my job is managing those people in in completion of their job, whether it's getting a line on the fire or doing a search or whatever. So you know, taking an officer from their crew to do like a command kind of function is like cutting the head off the sink. You That's know right. what I mean? And, and, and especially when we said that what puts the fire out is hose lines and halligans, 
you know, you don't want to cut the head off the company. You get what I'm saying? You want that company leader leading their company in battle to get those jobs done. So, you know, taking these, so, you know, quote unquote, free agents that show up, you know, one guy in a SUV shows up and says, what can I do for you? Well, since you're not leading the company, how about you help me at the command post? Or how about you take this forward position and coordinate the work of these three captains? You know, that kind of stuff, you know, so it's not just about rank. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's about what is that person's job on the fire ground? What is their position? Yeah. Um, you know, you know, when we organize too, I mean, you know, you know, I, I, the span of control thing is a real thing. You know, everybody learns that in like NIMS 100 or whatever it's called these days, but you know, the three to seven optimum five kind of thing, that's yep. a real thing. And, and I just want you to think about, you know, how many people do you want to supervise on a fire ground? Well, and I guess the question is, well, you know, are they on the fire floor in zero visibility or are they running a tanker shuttle? You know, cause I can take, you know, I can take 20 guys doing a lot of a dip running a tanker shuttle up and down a rural road for six hours. They're not <laughs> exactly in a life threatening environment unless they run out of dip. You know what I'm saying? hundred percent. You know, you, you put me in zero visibility on the fire floor. I don't know if I can supervise more than four people. Right. You know, more than three people. I can't see. Right. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Uh, you know, so and it's obviously a much more treacherous environment. So the more treacherous the environment and the more time condensed the situation is, the tighter that span of control has got to be. Yeah. Um, you know, so in the more dangerous situation, you want fewer numbers. There's a reason why one captain doesn't take 10 firefighters inside the building. Um, so, you know, what we'll usually do is as we build out an incident, you know, anytime we we take, we, we have two or more companies doing either the same task or in the same location, we're going to identify one of them is in charge. So, because if I send engine one and engine two to the fire floor and I don't tell either of them that's either they're in charge, what are they both going to do? Yeah, they're both in charge. Yeah, they're both in charge. They're kind of going to, you know, I don't know if they're battling the fire or each other. Right, yeah, you know, right, exactly. Coordinated. But if I say, hey, engine one, engine two, go to the fire floor, engine one, you know, you're in charge of the first floor, or if we want to be fancy, I would say you're in charge of division one, um, then now we've got some coordination. Now we've got it established who's running that environment. Yeah. And on all, almost on all of our fires, um, we, that would start out as being a company officer. You know, it would end up being usually an engine officer, uh, and I can go into why that is versus a ladder officer. But usually an engine officer until one of those chief officers arrives on scene, and then we put the chief in there. And again, it's not because the chief is some kind of ma magic wizard who knows all the things. It's because that lets that company captain go back to focus That's exclusively right. on leading their crew and doing the company job. Yeah. And it now makes the, the chief's job coordinating between multiple captains. And and that is audible, right? So you're promote you're 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 filling out that position or transitioning that position to the next arriving chief and that's announced over the air so that people understand the structure of what's yeah, being put in yeah. place. Hey, yeah. com command all units on a fire ground, yep. I'm assigning battalion two is division one, engine one, engine three, ladder one, you're reporting to division one. Yeah. It's clean. And everybody knows that means the first floor. They know battalion two is in charge and they know what three companies. And, and that's not just those three companies that are on the first floor in that example, but now everybody on the fire ground, because that's announced, begins getting an idea of what the structure is of the incident. I love it, man. I love it. You just crushed an hour 
worth of command <laughs> conversation, bro. I think I said 20 words this whole podcast, which is perfect. I'm sorry. No, See, that's the... what my wife says. That's what my wife means about the listening. And no, hearing. no, because no. this is exactly what I want. I think that the last hour you dropped a lot of great information. What I tried to do was get it, you know, somewhat. Uh, sometimes I like to ask questions that I think represent people that are listening or you know, the different makeups of what's happening. And so I appreciate you uh, entertaining my, my questions. But I, I think that you bring a lot to the table when it comes to this topic. And I, I think that this is one of those topics that is not explored and talked about enough. Too often we're busy stretching better, cutting better, forcing better, removing better, rid operations and everything else. And when are we training on command? When are we training on a organized structure of command and conquering the fire ground accountability and things that actually matter when it gets complicated. And, uh, and I think you did a very nice job tonight talking about that. Um, any recommendations like going forward or what's next for you just in regards to people that might want to learn more, see more, do more on the command side, Nick, what, you know, uh, where can they reach you, find you? What do you got coming up? Anything that they can dive in or, or how do they get a hold of you? Yeah. Well, I mean, so first to answer the question you just answered, that when should you, when are you preparing for that stuff? I hope it's every time. Oh, I do too. You know, uh, uh, for, formally, we, we do it quarterly. You know, okay. formally, we, we follow this JJO thing. It's uh, January, April, July, and October. And every quarter, you know, we're running command specific drills and they're not just for the chiefs. They integrate everybody from the fire chief down to probationary firefighters in the same room, talking about everything from the engine and truck tactics to the command structure of the incident. Everybody gets to hear what everybody is thinking. You know, we let people act out of their roles. You know, I've had probationary firefighters, you know, play command before, not, not because I expect them to do it on a fire, but because now they understand what the coach is thinking when they're playing in the Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Love that. And, and the other thing I would recommend is that you integrate command into every, you know, scenario where it would be applicable. We, we never go to the burn building and we're like, hey, we're just going to run the engine and truck operations. We don't do the command thing. We run it on everything. Like, e even if there's not a chief there, the officers will play it out. You know what I mean? Because they want all the pieces to be there just like they would in the real world. I got one company officer we have a training channel that we use and I'll catch him on the training channel at nine o'clock at night. And he's like running an incident by himself. Like he's playing all the roles, you know, and I don't know, maybe he should start like changing his voice when he acts as different people, but like, that's how into it is. He is like, he's running the whole, he's assigning himself with himself and his other, you know, he's like, but anyway, the point is, is like the more you integrate all that stuff, yes. you know, the more it is second nature on the fire ground. You know, and, and that's the thing. And I'm sure I'm being a little long winded here, but that's the thing I'll hear all the time is like, oh, you know, hey, do you guys do all this command stuff? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, we do it sometimes like, oh, you know, like, hey, like every time we get fire on, you know, 10 or more floors of a hundred story building, we do all the command things. Yeah. Like, right. Oh, yeah. How often does that happen? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it doesn't happen very often. You know, actually, we had one last year. And I tell you what, now that you mentioned it, we tried to do this like division and group and worksheet stuff and like. It was terrible, man. Nobody knew how it worked and like it was all cumbersome and like nobody knew what they're doing. I'd be like, oh, wait a minute. So so you waited for a fire that you almost never have to start doing a bunch of things that you otherwise never do. Yep. And then it went poorly and you were surprised. Yeah. You know, and, and then you blamed it on the system. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Like if, yeah. if you don't tie a bowl in in 10 years, I wouldn't hang off that rope. You know what I'm saying? I get it. Uh, I got it. You know, so you got to integrate that. Stuff, yeah, really, but. really, really well said. I love that, though. 
But thank you, Chief. I mean, just a, a great conversation tonight. I always enjoy talking with you. I always learn so much. Where can people find you? What do you have coming up uh, if they want to reach out? Um, what do you got? Well, for better or worse, I'm all over the Internet. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I like you. I, didn't I like even, YouTube a lot these you know, days. We didn't even um, get into we, that. I wanted to touch on I that. Know. Let's touch on that real quick, real quick, because I, I, I think that it deserves the conversation that you and I had before I hit the record button tonight. Talking about your social media presence, I'm sorry, I, I, I absolutely spaced that, and I have it written on my sheet on the bottom here to finish with this. But filling out what you do, how you represent your brand, the teachings that you're, you're putting out there, um, and so on is directly through your abilities to promote uh, your message on social media, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, and, and every other channel that's out there. Um, talk to me a little bit about that process and why that's so important to you. Well, number one, something I, something I want to say as often as I can whenever there's an audience, because I think this is important, um, is that I, I think that I have exceptionally thick skin compared to some people. And I say that, um, I, I say that because for those of you that don't know, um, having 2,200 characters, including punctuation and spaces, and up to 90 seconds in video length is not enough time to fully explain a practice or a concept or a skill. Yep. And I say all that because, you know, people's attention spans this, these days is ridiculous. And, you know, you know, you have a very small amount of time to capture that on social media. And so you try and put out bit sized things that people will actually watch or read and digest and hopefully pick their curiosity or give them a little something. You know, but I think some people think that because I couldn't write like a 30 page, a 30 chapter in an Instagram post, like I must not know this or I must not have considered that. And they really throw the baby out with the bathwater. And and now this isn't just about me. I'm, what I'm getting to is I can handle that. I've been doing this for a while. I've been on the Internet for a while. Don't bother me when some no name ass clown wants to try and be a smart ass. But there are a lot of great firefighters out there. Who, who know more than I do that are not going to share their message because the internet is a cesspool and they can't handle it. And we all want to talk about, you know, uh, never forget and pass it on and pay it forward, you know, and there's a lot of people out there that are being straight up assholes on the internet. And, and what the senior guy that's reading that, you know, reading your, your weirdo, no name keyboard, anonymous hero crap on somebody else's stuff as they're saying i ain't getting in the middle of that and and all the lessons they could share and all the things they could be adding to the conversation are disappearing into the universe you know because social media as much as i despise it, it is where people are you know you know you know jeremy i know you're like me man the the stack of fire engineerings and firehouse magazines that used to be on the top of people's toilets, you know, your mind back in the day was unfathomable. These days, people don't even get hard copy magazines. And so, you know, one of the things I picked up early, either intentionally or accidentally, I don't even remember what, is you got to go where the audience is. And where the audience is, is, is on whatever social media platform is popular right now. And I just wish that everybody out there would take that stuff with a grain of, of salt and quit being assholes. And if you're going to be an asshole, put your real name behind it, you know, like you have some balls. Uh, and, you know, if, if you're not, then feel free to scroll on or unfollow, man. 
and it's not for me, you know, it's for these other people out there. Cause I know them. I, I know a lot of people that I'm like, you need to share that message. You need to tell that story. You need to show that skill. And they're like, are you kidding me? I'm not putting myself out there with all those weirdos and, you know, you know, anonymous keyboard, you know, critics and stuff like that. And you know what I'm talking about, Jeremy, cause we've talked about that before. I'm, um, I'm literally you know, sitting back in my chair away from the microphone. I almost want to put my feet up on my desk right now and just listen to you go on this. This is amazing <laughs> because you and I have talked We've about talked. this. It's yeah, 100%. It's been coming. Yeah, 100%, man. We could do – well, you're going to have to come back, and we'll do a whole episode just on this. But I – It I, ain't about me. It ain't about me. Trust me. I I'm get doing it. just fine. You I, know, but I get people it. people out there. Sure. You know them. You know the guys we could be hearing from. If you're 100%. lucky to catch them at the bar or you're yep. lucky to catch them at the kitchen table, you're blessed. But that message could be going so much further. But yeah. I mean, who wants to get involved in this nonsense? I get it. You know? I get it. We got to do a better job. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm on YouTube and Instagram. <laughs> nice. Yeah. But you know what you do, Nick? And I'm a- You know what you do? You accept responsibility for everything you put out there. You put your name out there. You put your picture out there, your contact information. And frankly, that's where it becomes authentic, right? Is because now we know who's giving us that information. You know, we know who you are, your pedigree. And I think that that's critically important because to build out something where you're putting yourself out there and teaching and promoting the betterment of the job and, and paying forward your experience and knowledge Right. It needs to come with a personality and name attached to it. And when you do that, you do open yourself up for criticism. Um, But I will tell you that your content is making a difference. The way you produce your content matters. You are probably one of the best social media training guys out there. Companies, uh, combat, uh, combat ready fire training. One of the best companies out there putting out like really polished and well put together and produced social media content in perpetuity. And everything you're putting out today and the quality of what you're putting out today will be representative of your brand today in 2023. And it will also be representative of your brand in 2100 because when you put it out there, it's out there. And your content is is really dialed in, Nick. And I have to say, I know how much time and energy goes into that. And the only way you put out content like that is when you're all in. And um, you're certainly all in, yeah. brother. Certainly. I, I appreciate that. And, yeah. you know, and, and I know you're doing some great things. I know you got big things coming. And, and I hope that, you know, guys like us can, uh, you know, do whatever we can to help other guys out there because like 100%. again like i know i know you know a dozen firemen that like they still got a flip phone they're not they're not making an instagram reel you know what i'm saying Correct. like they think the reel is the thing that goes on the old projector yeah. you know and again i want to see those guys get their message out there because a lot of those guys have the best message you know I, I couldn't agree with you more and those are the guys that i try to surround myself with and i know you do as well and that's where it matters and i i challenge people that if you do, I'd like to think that the people that are attending conferences, the people that are trying to better themselves are not going to take the time to lower their standards and values on social media by tearing it apart or tearing others down or just looking to pick fights or, or to be an absolute troll. You know, those aren't the people that are trying to make this job better. Um, and so it, we're not even speaking to those people that are listening to this episode, right? But if you happen to be one yeah. of those or you happen to understand that, you know, uh, you know, or, you know, people out there that do that, take a stand, man. Shut that shit down because it's toxic. It destroys not not only that, but that's an individual that you're riding a fire truck with speaks volumes to that yeah. individual. 
I wouldn't want that guy riding in my company. I can assure you of that. So yeah, if you're participating in that stuff, don't try and tell me that you're about the brother. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. Well, chief, thank you very, very much for joining me tonight, man. It's always fun getting together with you. I learned a ton as always. And uh, I'll tell you, man, you got a dialed in program and uh, I've seen it. And now talking with you a couple times on the podcast and getting to know you, uh, you got a lot of value to bring to the fire service, man. You got a long way to go in preaching and, and teaching. And uh, I just appreciate you, man. Thanks for taking some time tonight. Yeah, always a good time. I hope we can do this again soon. We certainly will, man. So don't go anywhere. Uh, combat Ready Fire Training. Uh, where did I see it? Here it is. N. Martin at CombatReadyFire.com. Nick Martin, thank you, brother, for joining me tonight. Stay right here. I'm just going to sign off the podcast. I'll come right back to you, okay? All right, bro. Cool. Thank you. Everyone, thank you for tuning in for another episode of the National Fire Radio Podcast. What a great conversation today about command and, and all the facets of it from one of the best out there, Nick Martin, Battalion Chief out of Salisbury, North Carolina. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate your participation. Check out the podcast at National Fire Radio email. Send us your ideas, thoughts, and uh, anything else you want to talk about, please hit us up there. That is a uh, avenue to communicate with us. And uh, whatever your suggestions are or thoughts, we'll get back to you on that. And do me a favor. Take this conversation. Take it back to the firehouse and talk about it. Because when we're talking about the job, we are making it better. We'll see you at the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Jeremy, National Fire Radio.